0: Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'll collect those and pray for you in the coming week. This is a special day in the life of our church. As uh, This is the the last Sunday morning. Brother Woody uh, will lead us in worship. I'm thankful Woody and Debbie are going to remain in our church family tonight. We have an opportunity to express our love and support and appreciation for them. I hope you'll be able to come uh, for the reception tonight at five o'clock in the fellowship hall. Looking for a great night of worship and a time in His presence. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. What a statement in Romans chapter two, verse four. And in this um, second chapter, in the first five verses, Paul is addressing the sin of, of, of judgmentalism, one of the crushing criticisms that is leveled against Christianity has been where professing believers have been cruel or harsh, whether it's through crusades, which we would question that's Orthodox Christianity or not. Or I remember in 10th grade reading the Scarlet Letter in poor Hester Prine, how she was mistreated by... Um, the church in her day bible believing christians have been labeled by many as judgmental rigid and hypocritical and certainly we we understand those charges many accounts are true instead of showing compassion and understanding believers have gone on record with their actions and words as anything but redemptive even among our among church people drive by shootings friendly fire are not uncommon, and they hurt. All the more reason for us to take note and for us to look at our own hearts as we look at Jesus' command in Matthew 7, where He said, Judge not that you be not judged. However, on the other hand, I believe this teaching by Jesus could be one of the most misunderstood in, in the Bible, because it's commonly interpreted to mean that no conviction, no discernment, no judgment, no evaluation, no assessment is to be given at all. So you can't make any moral claim, any truth claim about what is right and what is wrong. And so the truth is lost through self justification of our sin into a sea of uncertainty, and we see it all around. But as blood bought believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to speak the truth to one another in love. And we're called to receive and believe God's Word as authoritative to guide us and to establish us in the truth so that we will not be like children blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. Dr. Fred Luter, the pastor of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church in New Orleans, said some years back at one of our denominational meetings, nothing can be politically correct that's biblically wrong. Followers of Christ, we're to speak the truth and love and objective truth revealed in Scripture. That's part of what it means to be salt and light in this world. Sometimes the issues are complex. Sometimes the balance is tricky. But nevertheless, where God's Word is clear, we must stand there, even if we're the most unpopular people in the world. That was the life of a prophet, you know, in the Old Testament. Um. The lifespan of a prophet in Israel was, as R.C. Sproul once said, like that of a, a lieutenant in combat. They, they just didn't fare well uh, because they were always on the firing line. And they would, they would cry out, thus saith the Lord, and many didn't want to hear it. We as God's people, the church is called to be a prophetic voice in this world, And that's not something we come up with on our own, that's standing on the truths of Scripture. Jesus calls His people to live in such a way that the love within the church attracts the world and the holiness within the church convicts the world. We must make judgments and seek to be discerning, but in all things we're to humbly remove the log that is in our eye so that we may see the speck that is in our brother's eye." The fact remains that living the Christian life requires that we make judgments and assessments and evaluations and to determine what's right before the living God. And the only way I know to do that is to search His Word. Well, you may be saying, what in the world does this have to do with Romans chapter 2? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because after one of the most sobering passages in the Bible, we survived Romans 1 but we always need to remember it and refer back to it because it's God's assessment of how far humanity has fallen. In Romans 1, the the Apostle Paul moves from the panorama of Gentile sin to confront the Jews who are judgmental in their spirit towards the Gentiles. We're not like those stinking Gentiles. We keep the Sabbath. We keep the dietary laws so Paul is confronting the Jew in chapter 2 because you remember Paul's purpose in writing Romans was really to seek to unify the church so that it would be uh, a beachhead for uh, gospel work to Spain. And at this time, the gospel had traveled to Rome, and there were Jew and Gentile in the same congregation. This is one of the great breakthroughs of the new covenant. When Barnabas went into the church at Antioch in Acts 11, he saw the grace of God on display. He saw Jew and Gentile at the same table. We read in this very chapter, Romans 1, verse 16, Paul said, I'm I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel first. And in God's plan, that gospel has reached even to us. So in chapter 2, Paul confronts the Jews who judge the Gentiles for their sins when they practice the very evils they criticize. I would just remind us of chapter 1. That the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men. The great effects of the fall and to sin is that we've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And we've embraced idolatry and have been pretty determined in that. And it says that God gave them over. They is us. Apart from the, uh, the grace of God invading and overcoming our resistance to Him, this is our story. This is our misery. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, and then he lists a number of sins that we looked at last week, from murder to gossip to pride to inventors of evil, and that what happens eventually is all sane thought is dismissed, and sin really is an insanity. In verse 32, it says of chapter 1, though you know God's righteous degree though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they become cheerleaders of rebellion. And so Paul transitions into chapter 2 with a therefore. And notice this with the Bible, that the Bible really calls us to to think there are therefores, There, there, there are pivots in the text where we're to think a little bit about what he's saying and where he's going. And so I would like to break up Romans 2 1 through 5 in several ways. The first would be lessons on the judgment of God. Lessons on the judgment of God. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, old man. That's encouraging, isn't it? And many scholars believe to say, believe that this is speaking to the Jew as we follow through. I'm going to have to go off. Uh, Chris? Sorry for the cutting out. We'll do our best. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on, one, on another, you condemn yourself. And so many scholars believe that he's speaking of the Jew who's in judgment to the Gentile. And so what are some lessons we can pull away from from this this passage? Well, the first thing we need to acknowledge, and it's not a comfortable thing to acknowledge, but the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that we're all under the judgment of God. He says, you, old man, you don't have any excuse. I think one of the deceptions of sin and one of the things that keeps us from... uh, uh, surrendering to the call of the gospel is this idea that somehow we've got some excuse that's going to bail us out. You need to know from the text of Scripture, you have no excuse. None that is going to wash at the judgment. Jared, can we transition here? Yeah. And so, we're all under the judgment of God. Jew and Gentile are without excuse. This reminds me of Second Samuel 12. Do you remember after um, David committed sin with Bathsheba, God dispatched Nathan to come and to talk to him, and he tells this heart-rending story. He says, there were two men in a certain city. David perks up. One was rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, and he brought this ewe lamb up. And he nurtured that little lamb, and his children grew up with this lamb. And the lamb used to eat and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, said the prophet. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd, one from his flock or herd, And to prepare for the guests. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the traveler. By preparing it, he slaughtered it and cooked it, and they ate it. Then David's anger kindled against the man. So a sense of righteousness welled up in David. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You don't have any excuse, David. You're exactly who I'm talking about. Therefore, you have no excuse. Jew or Gentile, none will wash. Every one of you who judges. And the sin here is not judgment. The sin here is is judging and doing the same thing that you're judging other people for. That's what he's talking about. Donald Gray Gray Barnhouse gives a contemporary forceful paraphrase of this verse. You dummy, do you really figure that you have doped out an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it? You don't have a ghost of a chance. Dr. Barnhouse continued by commenting, there is no escape. Do you understand? No escape ever. And this means you, the respectable person, sitting in judgment upon another fellow creature and remaining unrepentant yourself. Romans 2 is for church people, isn't it? Religious people. Matthew Henry wrote, there is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. I think it's interesting to look at this passage and pull out another lesson on judgment. And it would be this. Uh, two questions. Saved from what? That is an important thing to, re- to think about. Saved from what? When you think of salvation, from what or whom are you saved? Isn't that a beautiful word in the Bible? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's a wonderful word. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Saved from what? Well, certainly saved from our sins, but even deeper than that, saved from God oh I don't like to think of those terms the God I I serve he doesn't he doesn't think much of it that's not the God of the Bible when you think of salvation from what or whom are we saved and by saved meaning saved from the penalty of our sin from a God who was wrathful Notice another lesson. God's judgment is based on truth and righteousness. The whole purpose of Romans 1 through 3, and why it's written and preserved in our Bibles, is to establish that all humanity, Jew and Gentile, are guilty before God. For by grace you've been saved, the scripture says. But Romans 1 through 3 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. So, God's judgment is based on truth and righteousness. Our judgments are not. We've often referenced that we don't even keep our own resolutions, let alone God's commandments. What are you holding up to be the, the moral standard for your life? And here's where works a works mentality comes in, that I have my own set of Morals. Well, how how well are you doing at keeping them? Maybe it's the Ten Commandments. If you say that your standard for morality is the Ten Commandments, you're condemned by that standard. Especially when you apply the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, those 109 verses in Matthew 5-7, through where Jesus extols uh, the truths of the kingdom of God. Jesus expands our understanding of sin. He said, you've heard it written. If you you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. If you hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder. No, we we don't keep our moral standards. We fall short of them. Well, I live by the golden rule. Really? You do unto others as you would have others do unto you every single time? Well, you know, nobody's perfect. God's standard is perfection. That's what you're not getting. I recalled in our connect group that illustration James Kennedy used in his EE presentation that if I just sin three times a day that's a thousand sins a year and if I live to be 70 70 years that's 70,000 sins on my record just three a day if you include your thought life what you do what you say and what you should do that you don't do I think it would be much higher than three a day don't you? I pray that as we're growing in Christ, we're sinning less and less. But we have a sin nature that we've got to continually put to death. No, we, we, don't, we don't even keep our own measure of righteous judgment. And here we come to two grave errors of the self-righteous. The first is this, you who judge practice, who judge practice the same things. So, self righteous people, they judge others for the very things they're doing themselves. Paul insists the self righteous underestimate God's standard of righteousness, which encompasses our inner life as well as what we do externally, which is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And we underestimate, self righteous people underestimate the depth of their own sin. It's not that bad. To be human is to sin. But we're talking about the way God views it, not the way we view it. And he sees it all. Notice with me, secondly, I love verse 4. Would you look at verse 4? Or do you presume on the riches of his grace and forbearance and patience? I didn't know God was like that. I didn't know he was kind. I didn't know he he for. bore bore with my sins I didn't know that he was patient look at verse 4 in the midst of this talk about judgment and wrath which you see the God who is and not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance we think lightly of God's riches his kind benefits that he freely gives to us His forbearance by withholding judgment. His patience as he endures the rebel acts of humanity. God's kindness is being extended for the purpose of your repentance. Now think with me about that in a couple of ways, several ways. If God is good, then if you think otherwise about him, that's a result of your fallen nature. If God is good and kind, and you think of him as otherwise, that's on you, my friend. That's not on him. Stop listening to yourself. Stop making gods in your own image. If God is good in his attribute and this attribute you, um, is expressed of him over and over again, he, that he is kind, that he is good, then to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ means finding the best for your life. And how many people, I talk to some people, it's like salvation by discovery. I'm going to figure this out. No, salvation doesn't come by discovery. It comes by repentance and believing and receiving what God has said about Himself. Do you really think that you can find good for yourself on your own, apart from God? That's the heart of the rebel. I'm going to live in rebellion, and it's, I'm going to live happily ever after. That—that that is never said about a rebel. Jeremiah rebuked Israel and he said to them in chapter 2 you dig cisterns cisterns are holding tanks or areas for gathering rain water for, uh, for drinking and other needs and in ancient times they were invaluable for sustaining life And Jeremiah, his message was you dig cisterns that don't hold water You dig and you dig and you work and you labor and they don't hold any water. And then he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, full of refreshment and life and hope. You have forsaken me. And you have hewed out, you have dug out cisterns for themselves, for yourselves, broken cisterns that don't hold any water. That's evil. What you think about God is the most important thing in your life. And this text says he's kind and he's good. And so if you have ever thought other thoughts about him, who needs to change? I pray you will, because wrong thinking about him leads to a lot of other wrong things in your life. James Boyce writes, you think that your own will is the good. You think that if you have to turn from what you think you want, you will be miserable. Can you not see that it is your own sinful way and the ways of millions of other people just like you that is the cause of your miseries? God is not the cause. God is good and the source of all good. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. One young girl who had gotten in trouble because of her rebellion led to one bad bad end after another. And over time, as her life hit a, a miserable stop like the prodigal who came to his senses in the pig pen she said to her pastor I learned that the people I thought were my enemies were actually my friends because they told me the truth and I learned that my trouble was not caused by other people I caused it if I'm going to get anywhere I have to change and that is the first inkling towards moving to repentance where we turn from our sin that we love to to the God we love more I would also mention that if God is good and kind, we're not to presume upon that. If he's forbearing toward you, if God is forbearing toward you, it is because he has a will to save you. If he wanted to condemn you outright, you wouldn't be here. Because he is forbearing and you're here this day, he has a will to save you. God's common grace is on display in this world, isn't it? The sun shines where? On the just and the unjust. The rain waters crops of the believer and the unbeliever. He allows a rebel humanity to enjoy blessings. We breathe his air and enjoy his universe. He gives us good food, fun times, family bonds, newborn babies, the delights of family life. If God is good to those who blaspheme his name and are ungrateful for his gifts, what do you think his response will be to those who repent and turn to him? Lonnie read that for us. In the offertory, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. I think of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, the little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree that we many of us have read or heard since we were children. And he stood and said to the Lord, Lord, half of my goods I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Notice with me also, if God is patient with your many flaws, it is because he is giving you an opportunity to be saved. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish but all come to repentance. his patience is opportunity for you this day to turn to him. Robert Ingersoll had a notorious and illustrative life as a lead atheist agnostic in the 19th century and he would travel the country and would uh, give lectures, of his criticism of theism and Christianity in particular, at one such meeting, he took off his watch and put it on the lectern, and he said, I will give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've said. That is the way he used to mock, mock God. Well, he wasn't struck dead. But one faithful pastor quipped, and did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God, the eternal God, in five minutes? We should be amazed at his patience towards us. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. We repent from our sins and turn to God in full trust. Jim Elef in his helpful little article, The Unrepenting Repenter, defines repentance as a change of mind regarding sin and God an inward turning from sin to God, which is known by its fruit, obedience. The religious person aspires to a heaven of lighthearted ease and recreation and extended vacation, but a heaven of holiness would be held to such a man. Yet God is holy and God is in heaven and he cannot be blamed for sending the unholy man to hell despite his most articulate profession, or professions turning to God. And then he gives this warning, thirdly, the dangers of a hard and penitent heart. In verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Jesus addressed the hardness of the human heart all through the Gospels. In fact, we read that the Gospel gives to us a new heart, a heart of flesh, and that God writes His Word on our heart. What does that mean? That when we hear the truth of God's Word, we're responding to it. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and that this rings true. The Gospel gives a new heart, a new spirit, and all through his ministry, Jesus addressed the heart, hardness of heart. He said, Moses permitted divorce because of a hardness of your heart. He gave provisions for it. He rebuked the religious leaders who were murmuring because he had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. And they did so because of the hardness of their heart. And he said to them, Listen, the Sabbath, the, the Sabbath was created to serve man, not the other way around. To refuse God, God's gracious pardon of sin carries with it terrible circumstances. The writer of Hebrews warned three times against the hardness of one's heart. Do not harden your hearts, he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. When we think of the word evil, we think of notorious crimes and sins. We think of murder and, and um, rape and assault and these, these categories of sins. We, that's evil. But here the text says to have an unbelieving heart, that's evil. One of the most tragic of mistakes is to think that because God is patient, he will not judge your sin. He has allowed you to live the years that you've lived so that you might come to, to him now before you die and that the opportunity of salvation is gone forever. There is no hope given in the text of Scripture. That leads anyone to believe that there's going to be other chances and opportunities for salvation beyond the grave. So what Moses would say in Psalm 90, Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Long ago, a very wise man said, Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring forth. In a very real sense, we have no tomorrow, we have no yesterday, we have today. This is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. I once heard of this little poem about Mr. Mintu. Have you ever met him? Perhaps you are him. Mr. Mintu has a comrade and his name is didn't do... Have you ever chanced to meet them? Have they ever called on you? These two fellows live together in the house of never and I'm told that it is haunted by the ghost of might have been. Of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these it might have been. D. James Kennedy said years ago, I would like for you to consider what this day would be like if at midnight tonight you knew you would die. How would you change your day? How would you do today? What would you do today that you have not uh, really been planning to do at all? Or tomorrow? Or the next day? Or the next? If each day were the last day you were to live on this earth, can you imagine how much more kindness, how much more love, how much more encouragement, how much more praise there would be in our homes? Maybe you would become more serious about the eternal destination of your soul. I just think of the whole task of preaching. And one of the, um, it's humbling, you ought to try it sometime. But I just often think about when all is said and done, what do I want the people I've preached to Sunday after Sunday to take away? That life is short And the time to follow Jesus Christ is now. Because we don't know what a day will bring forth. Awake sleeper, Paul said in Ephesians 5 Today is the day of salvation. I once read about John Wesley, who had such an experience while preaching, and he looked down from the pulpit and he noticed a man right in front of him sleeping while he's preaching. And he stopped preaching. And silence filled the room. And then he yelled, fire, fire. Then the man leaped to his feet, startled. He looked around and asked, where, where? And Wesley said, in hell, man, for those who sleep under the gospel. Some of you have heard the gospel hundreds of times. You need to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you still walk away. Don't presume on the patience of God. Don't presume on his kindness to you. Call upon him now. Receive him now. I read this week that hardening of the arteries may take you to the grave, but hardening of your spiritual heart to the goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will take you to hell. No excuse from the archives of humanity can rescue you. That's what makes this a lifeline to us today, and maybe to change our attitude about how we view God—that a God so good, so kind, so patient, so forbearing. He's that way to us that we might run to Him and run to Him now. Why don't we do that? Would you bow with me in prayer? Sin leads us to stray further than we thought we'd stray, to stay longer than we thought we'd stay, to cost us more than we thought we'd pay. And all the more reason to flee to Jesus Christ right now. Maybe you've never thought of God as kind and good and patient. He is. He is. And if you come to him, he will in no way cast you out. Lord, I pray in these closing moments of this service that we would give our hearts to you. For those that are without faith in Christ, that they would feel the urgency of this day. It's another day you've given them to live. It's another demonstration of your patience and forbearance that would lead them to turn to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. And for all of us, Lord, to be challenged by these attributes that are revealed to us in this text, that we would redeem our days for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Christ. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.